Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Passing Shot with Joel and Kim, the tennis podcast by fans. On today's Passing Shot Meets... We chat with Lee about where to watch tennis on telly in 2021 and bring you all the latest quarantine developments ahead of the Australian Open. Kim, our first guest on the series this season. Uh, I feel like a lot has happened since our we've last spoke on our last catch up. I feel like a massive storm has kind of picked up over Melbourne and it's just every day it feels like I could write a novel essentially about the tennis. Yeah, there's been an awful lot to get our teeth stuck into over the last, well, over the weekend, especially a lot of um, controversial things coming out of Melbourne and uh, all the Australian Open news, but which we will get onto later in the episode. So listeners do stick around. Um, first of all, though, we have um, Lee, who runs Tennis on Telly um, on Twitter. Um, he has been a a guest twice before on our show he's a friend of the podcast and we are delighted to have him back on the show so lee welcome back how are you doing today thank you um hello everyone um hello joel hello kim i'm very good thank you um yeah uh, it's it's been about a year since we last talked and and a lot has happened in that last year so (laughs) yeah Well, it's true. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we talked a, a year ago about what to look forward to in 2020 and a lot of it didn't happen or didn't happen how we expected it to happen. So let's hope that some of the stuff that I say that, I, that I talk, we talk about today is actually going to be useful. <laughs> So for listeners who maybe haven't listened um, to Lee before or a, a new listener to the show, Lee, if you could just um, quickly kind of explain who you are, um, what it is that you do. Um, I know you know, you're very well loved within the tennis fan community, <laughs> especially on Twitter, for your useful um, kind of knowledge regarding how to actually watch tennis in the UK. So, yeah, if you could just kind of give us a, a bit of a, a brief introduction um, for any new listeners. Sure. So, so I'm Lee. I've been a tennis fan for God knows how many years. Um, and for the last sort of five years now, I have run a website and um, a Twitter account called Tennis on Telly. Um, that is literally Tennis on Telly, um, the, the handle. And their website is tennisontelly.uk. And the idea um, around it is just to give fans information about where they can watch TV, uh, tennis on TV, because it's not always obvious. Um, at the time when I created it, it, it was very sort of fragmented in terms of different things elsewhere. It's not so much now, but, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to keep, um, you know, I'd like to help fans find the tennis that they want to watch um, because it's constantly something. And when you're using social media, it's something that you see is people go, well, I want to watch this, but where, where can I find it? Um, it's very much UK um, centred. Um, so I concentrate also on British players, um, but I try and keep a sort of a balance between British players and, and yeah. other players as well. And I do basically the schedules and um, where the, where people can find it. And and, and that's it, really. <laughs> Just, you know, try and provide as much information as I can to people to help them find the telly, tennis on the telly. Um, 
No, it's fantastic what you do. I mean, especially if there's like a last minute court change for, you know, a British player or something. Yeah. Your updates are really useful um, so people know where to, to go. And and obviously we've got, you know, this is the start of the season, lots of tennis coming up, including the um, Melbourne Summer Series events that, you know, the week before the Australian Open, we've got, um, well, four different events, um, ATP Cup as well going on. Um, and then obviously the Australian Open itself. So I wonder if you could just give us a run through of where on earth we can go to watch all of the tennis that's um, coming up for us over the next over the next few months, especially. OK, so the Australian Open is obviously the, the big one that everyone's looking forward to. And um, Eurosport will again have uh, coverage of the Australian Open. It's the final year of Eurosport's deal with Tennis Australia. So it remains to be seen whether they'll continue that going forward. Um, their deal with Tennis Australia also includes the ATP events that take place before the Australian Open. So that at the moment that include that is, that is ATP um, Adelaide, the Adelaide International, which we know is now going to happen in Melbourne. Um, the, we're not sure at the moment whether that includes the second event that they've added in Melbourne in the week before um, the Australian Open. So at the moment, I know that it, it definitely includes the, the first one, the one that's replacing Adelaide. Um, and then in terms of other tournaments that are taking place that week before the Australian Open, we have the ATP Cup, which you mentioned. That will be on Amazon Prime Video, along with the two WTA events that take place in that week and also all of the WTA events that take place after the Australian Open, with the exception of a few, which I'll come on to a bit later. Um, but just talking generally about what to look forward to throughout the year, um, in terms of what's on Eurosport, Roland Garros will be on Eurosport again this year. Again, it's the final year of that deal for Eurosport and also the final year of the deal that ITV have with Roland Garros. So, again, we'll wait and see if they're going to get any, um, if there's going to be a renewal on that deal, on those those deals. Um, but for the rest of the, the tournament, with Wimbledon on the BBC, um, that covers all of your Grand Slams. And, and the US Open will be on Amazon Prime Video. That covers your Grand Slams. And in terms of the WTA Tour, that will be on Amazon Prime Video, with the exception of the events that take place in Britain, which will be on Eurosport. And the ATP events, which will be on Amazon Prime Video, um, certainly the Masters 1000 events and 500 events, and they have about 13 um, 250 level events. They don't have the whole 250 calendar on Amazon Prime Video, but about 200, about 13 250 events. Um, just a couple of extras on top of that is that the BBC, as well as Wimbledon, will have Queens and Eastbourne. That's a four-year deal until 2024 um, with Wimbledon. And with the ATP finals moving to Turin this year, that means that that will no longer be on the BBC as it has been in the past. Um, one other thing to note is the, the BBC are going to show the Great Britain versus Mexico in the Billie Jean Cup, which people might remember used to be called the Fed Cup. Um, that's the 16th and 17th of April. That was rescheduled from February. So that kind of covers, I think, everything that is going to be um, on TV throughout the year. So the main ones to remember are Amazon Prime Video for US Open, ATP and WTA and Eurosport for Roland Garros, Australian Open and the British WTA events in the summer before Wimbledon. 
So it's, it's kind of interesting because obviously we've had a lot of change, I think, over the last few years with Amazon Prime kind of coming in um, and really sweeping up quite a bit of the, the tennis coverage. But what you're saying mm. is this year as well, it could also be quite an interesting year because it sounds like with a couple of the Grand Slams, they're, in, they're sort of entering the final year of their deals with their current broadcasters. And it's still a bit of an unknown as to, you know, as to where they might end up. Yeah, so we know where they're going to be this year in 2021. What we don't know is where they're going to stay with those broadcasters next year in 2022. So that goes for the Australian Open and for Roland Garros. Um, you know, it may, it may be that the, the broadcasters that currently have them renew those rights and they stay where they are, or it might be that um, Amazon Prime Video, we know a, a, it's been rumoured they've had interest in the Australian Open Um Eurosport tends to go for a Europe-wide rights for things rather than rights in specific countries. So, um, But they do have Europe-wide rights for those Grand Slams. So the other thing to consider there is whether Eurosport might continue to pick up the WTA events in the summer because although that because those rights are sold separately because they're tournaments in the UK, the rights are sold separately within the UK. But Eurosport does show WTA tour events and ATP tour events in other countries, just not in the UK. Um, with the exception, I think, of Geneva and uh, Linz uh, on the WTA calendar, um, which are some exceptions which, uh, you know, go back to deals that are done years and years ago. So, um, yeah, it remains to seen. Remains, remains to be seen what happens in terms of 2022, but for 2021, essentially nothing changes from what was planned for 2020. And I, I assume we've got the, obviously we've got the Olympics as well, and if that does go ahead uh that the tennis for that will also be available i'm assuming it will be kind of like last time where it would be on the the bbc so yeah so the um the rights for the olympics are shared between the bbc and eurosport it was the same in 2020 no 2016 in rio um where the main rights were on the bbc and then eurosport had additional rights um across europe from memory in 20 16 all of the tennis was on the bbc whether that's going to still be the case for the 2020 games which obviously are now in 2021 um whether that's still going to be the case uh, i'm not sure but um at the end the olympics are sort of going to be in the summer most people are going to have that eurosport subscription still from Wimbledon uh, sorry from Roland Garros and the tournaments before Wimbledon so chances are people are going to have access to that anyway and like I say then the BBC obviously is is free for everyone in the UK um on top you know apart from your license fee the BBC is accessible to everyone in the UK um so there's no issues there in terms of having to have something extra for the Olympics yeah, of course. And basically, if you're, you know, if you've got a subscription to Amazon Prime, you've got a Eurosport player and you've got, you know, regular TV, you're pretty much covered uh, for this season. And then it will be interesting to see if Prime, you know, sweep up any more of the other um, events for next year. I suppose it will come down to, to money at the end of the day. Um, I mean, what, what's your take on, on the different offerings? Like, I mean, obviously, you run the Tennis on Telly, um, you know, site. So I don't know if you want to remain more neutral in this league but do you have a particular preference um i know we spoke before about this but obviously every year amazon prime kind of their coverage has you know changed they're always adding things so i mean what's your opinion on kind of their coverage um as opposed to some of the more traditional 
things that we get on like the BBC? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, there is a noticeable difference in terms of how broadcasters cover the different tournaments. The BBC go all out for Wimbledon um, and then, you know, they scale it back a little bit for their coverage of Queens and um, Eastbourne. Um Amazon Prime is, is quite up there for the, the big tournaments. They do really good coverage when it's the big tournaments, such as, you know, obviously they do the US Open, but also when they do the, the Masters um, events and the Premier events. Um, outside of that, Amazon generally go with um, the World Feed coverage that's provided to them by the WTA for the WTA events um, and the ATP for, for the ATP events. Um, Eurosport, on the other hand, it kind of... <laughs> it's not I don't feel that they put as much into it as they used to I don't know whether that's um a budget thing um I know that in the past they have you know last year's Australian Open they didn't go out they didn't send their whole team out to Australia to cover they covered some of it from London and obviously with the pandemic they've had to cover the last Roland Garros and they will cover this year's Australian Open from London um you do notice that there's a reduction in the, um, uh, I don't know whether the quality is the right word for it, but you do notice that they, it, because they're not, they're not doing specific coverage for specific countries. It's, it's overall coverage for the whole of Europe all of the time now. Um, so instead of having presenters that are, are more familiar to, to British faces, you have Barbara Shett and Mats Verlander. I mean, for tennis fans, those are familiar faces, but for the casual person who is used to, you know, British players and experts um, covering events for a British audience, that's not that's not happening with Eurosport so much anymore. Um, what I did like is Eurosport, um, that, and they've won an award for this, was their, their Eurosport Cube where they brought players into the studio like in a, in a hologram. Um, I thought that was really good. Um, Amazon Prime experimented with a few things with their Euros Open coverage last year as well. I don't know if you remember Radzi's Radar. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't think that – I think it was, a, you know, it was a good idea to kind of get some – some sort of social media interaction with the audience. I don't think it worked quite as well as it could have done um, because some people, some people didn't like it. Um, you know, it, I think it's a good thing to fill in time, but sometimes it was at, at the wrong time. Um, and and for each, for, for all the broadcasters really for the last year, they've only been able to cover tournaments from their studios in London, they've not been able to do the travel that they would normally be able to do. So I think the only on-site coverage that we had of any tournament last year was at the O2 um, with Amazon and the BBC both being there because it was in London. But everything else is, is has been done from their London studios. Now, for, most, you know, for some people, they won't notice a difference with that. Um, I think Amazon probably do that a bit better than Eurosport, but it, you do notice it when people aren't actually there interviewing players and talking to players and going and showing the, you know, especially the Grand Slam, showing the the courts and showing the grounds and doing, and, you know, in comparison to what they have done previous years. Like I say, it's probably a combination of, um, especially in Eurosport's case, the budget to be able to do that, but also obviously the pandemic having the. Uh, an influence on that and the decisions that broadcasters have to take to still essentially the most important part is the tennis itself and I think you know as long as they do that bit right does anyone really care about the stuff that they put around it some might some some don't you know I find some of the analysis that that Amazon does really good um but 
the important thing is to get the actual tennis coverage right. It's interesting because I feel like, you know, we've seen over the last you know few years this shift of tennis sort of presentation on television uh, to digital with Amazon Prime coming in. Um, I know we've obviously got Eurosport player as well. I get the I get the feeling from fans is that um, Amazon Prime works a lot better than the Eurosport player. So I want to get your kind of opinion on that. But also, where does, um, you know, tennis, tennis TV, where does that also fit into the landscape? So, you, you know, any sort of uh, products from the ATP or WTA, where do they kind of fit in as well? Yeah, so um, in terms of Amazon Prime and Eurosport Player, both both streaming services, but obviously you still have the the um, Eurosport broadcast on satellite and cable. Um, personally, um, I don't have a preference in terms of whether a tournament's on Amazon Prime or Eurosport. To me, um, the the user experience is very similar for both. Um, the benefit of having Eurosport player over just having Eurosport 1 and Eurosport 2 through Sky or through cable is that you have access to additional streams when there are additional calls. You know, that's really useful at the grandstands. You can pretty much watch any match that you want. Um, it's the same with Amazon Prime. All, all of those tournaments you can watch, whichever match you choose. And the BBC have been doing that at Wimbledon for years as well. So I think it's great that streaming has sort of given viewers more choice um obviously the 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 downsides of streaming are you've got to have a decent internet connection to be able to watch it um otherwise it's just going to buffer and there is a slight delay between things happening in real time at the at the tournament and you seeing it on on the screen i mean there's a there's a delay in traditional television anyway but it's negligible but with streaming, it's more noticeable and it only takes for your internet to sort of have a little blip for a couple of seconds and then suddenly you find that you're 10, 15 seconds behind the action. So I think, you know, streaming is, is it's going to be the way that things go. I mean, personally, I won't be watching any tennis through traditional means probably anymore, um, apart from Wimbledon. If something's on BBC One or BBC Two, I've got rid of my Sky subscription and everything's coming through streaming now. Um, but, you know, for some people, it's not not quite there. But I think people are becoming more accepting of that being the way forward, if that makes sense. Um, you asked about tennis TV and and for, for ATP and the WTA. Well, tennis TV is still there. Um, it's still the ATP's sort of what we call over-the-top service. So that has all coverage of all of the ATP tournaments in the calendar um, with the World Feed commentary on them. Um, the WTA has an over-the-top uh, service called WTA TV, but that hasn't been available in the UK since Amazon took the rights, so it doesn't really affect um, anyone. You don't really have a choice with w- for the WTA tour like you do with the ATP tour in terms of which streaming service you go with. Generally, most people are going to be going with Amazon Prime because they're getting that for the WTA anyway, so you know, you've got both tours on that service. Um the, the only thing that I would say is if you if the, if you're a sort of a diehard fan who wants to watch every match at every ATP 250 event around you know that's televised, then you're going to need tennis TV for that as well. Fantastic! No, that's a really good comprehensive overview Lee, um, <laughs> of all the I different so. options. <laughs> and I have to say, um, what with working from home, I think everyone may have may have just maybe kind of. Well, either upgrade. I know I upgraded my Wi-Fi um, when I started working from home, so I'm hoping that's going to allow me to 
stream all the tennis I want and do my day job at the same time. Um, and I'm sure there'll be many people trying to combine everything when it when it you know comes on our screens in a few weeks. Um, but we've also um, just just talk about like technology and how we all kind of follow the sport as fans. Um, we had the the live scores app that I think most people used to use. That that's that's no longer. Um, the ATP have developed their own one, um, not the WTA. And there are some other options out there. I mean, is there any app that you use now, or um, I don't know if you've got any insight into to the app side of things as well from your kind of broadcasting. I know you talked about the apps on last week's pod. Um, there was uh, what I found really useful was there's a guy called Ed Salmon who goes by the handle of Fogmount, F-O-G-M-O-U-N-T on Twitter. And he did a comparison of the various apps. So um, he compared the WTA website with Flashcore and SofaScore and Resultina and all the different apps that are available and, and sort of listed their advantage and disadvantages and disadvantages. Um, this was before you mentioned the, the app that you mentioned last time, the TNNS app, um, which um, I've, I've downloaded. And I've, and I've had a, a little play with that. Um, it, it very much does what the WTA and the ATP live score app that now doesn't work and now is no longer a thing. It very much does what that app used to do, um, but they've added ITF tournaments to it as well. I think it's been set up by a tennis fan who sort of knows what he's doing in terms of building apps because it's sort of just appeared suddenly um, and got a bit of a push from a few, you know, sort of fans and, and tennis journalists. Um yeah, it seems to do what 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 you'd expect an app to do. It's got nothing sort of, um, it's got nothing too fancy on it. So there are some apps which have got ads. There are some apps like the the Tennis One app, which has got videos and things. And and some people just you don't need that if you just want a bare bones service that does what you know gives you the basics of order of play and results and draws. Then that app does that. So. Um, I've been using that and that's, that's been quite good. Um, in terms of the app that's gone, um, my understanding is that that app ran on Flash um, and Flash was um, pulled by Adobe. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So at the end of the year. Um, now, I've got first-hand experience of Flash breaking other things as well. Um, in terms of my day job, it's broke a lot of sort of e-learning that we do, um, which has caused some major problems in my day job. So I'm well aware of, you know, what the impact of pulling Flash has had on things. Um, but to, <laughs> it's disappointing in a way that the ATP and the WTA sort of left it right up to the last minute to then say, okay, this app doesn't work anymore. And... The ATP have gone, well, here's our replacement because they'd already got their app. And the ATP and the WTA are sort of, well, we've got a website um, <laughs> which, which doesn't accurately do scores. Um, as people have found out, that the scores on the ATP website have, you know, have no correlation to what was actually happening on the uh, court in some cases in Abu Dhabi. Um, hopefully they've got that sorted by now. But it's a bit disappointing that sort of the WTA were probably relying on that app and didn't, and we were caught out by the fact that that app didn't work. Now, the app, the app, that app itself was run by the ATP. Um, so, and, and it's, it's like, um, there's a few things in tennis where the AT where the ATP and the WTA sort of worked on things together, and then the ATP have run them and owned them, and the WTA have sort of been like you know the little sister that just hangs on to your, your coat as you're walking down the road kind of thing. So it's 
it's it's a it's a bit disappointing that the WTA weren't more prepared for that, but. It felt a bit like, you know, the WTA obviously and the ATP did kind of big rebranding kind of jobs over the summer. It almost kind of felt like WTA were more kind of concerned about the, you know, their branding and making sure that they could bring like the live scores into their branding as opposed to obviously making the kind of like functionality and the user experience actually felt like that should have been the priority. Uh, But, you know, it feels like hopefully, um, you know, hopefully we'll, will kind of it'll kind of smooth out as we go on we're seeing lots of sort of different alternatives kind of pop up i just hope hopefully there'll be one that will be the sort of de facto one that can replace um you know the the live scores app but um just kind of going back to yeah exactly i hope so too (laughs) it means i can i can pester kim with you know the qualifying draws of you know atp 250 tournaments where you know it's really niche but it means i could just kind of screenshot a pdf of a draw send it to kim on whatsapp and make a little joke about how mad your is doing in uh you know (laughs) yeah yeah. i know i saw that (laughs) um but i I think it, it it's probably not just the app that I feel that the WTA has been caught out on. Um, if you look at sort of when the pandemic um, came in, the ATP were very quick to sort of create new tournaments. Um, they created a lot more new tournaments. The WTA was a little bit slower at doing that, and they didn't create as many tournaments. They've not been as good at, as good at organising new tournaments as quickly. Um, and that, that that's evident both on the main tour and on the Challenger Tour as well. The ATP have set up new challenges literally within weeks um one thing i wanted to to say was um the atp event that happened in cologne um that was originally planned to be an atp event and a wta event and ended up being two atp events back to back um in terms of the um broadcasting they did really well and they set up their own streaming service specifically for that tournament because it was all done very short notice and they didn't get any broadcasters involved to uh, or they didn't have time to get any broadcasters involved to broadcast the event you know sort of around the world it was very much okay we'll 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 get german tv to show it but no one else can sort of to show it so we'll no one else is going to see it so they built a website specifically for that and it worked really well um but yeah it's been a bit disappointing that wga hasn't been quite on the ball perhaps not on the ball but hasn't been quite at that level that the atp has when it comes to a, you know quite a few things not just in terms of app but in terms of um organization and things like that as well and and just kind of moving on quickly before we go to our ad break, um, just kind of bring it back to kind of the uh, presentation kind of perspective of tennis, because mm. I know you've been a big sort of fan around sort of equality in terms of the, the commentary teams. And you feel like, you know, with the current situation, it, it could work a little bit. It could work a little bit harder. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it, it's, you know, probably commentators are working from home now and things like that. But um, it's... It's a bit disappointing that we, we're still in a situation in 2021 where the WTA commentary is very much dominated by male voices still and not, there isn't, aren't so many female voices. And that's, and that's with a few exceptions, that's male voices who don't necessarily specialise in tennis. I'm not saying that, you know, someone can be, can be a, can't be a commentator in, multi, in various different sports, but I think for someone who's used to uh, watching and listening to tennis commentary for years and they, they notice a difference between, um, you know, someone who they 
recognize as not necessarily you don't necessarily have to be an ex-payer but recognize as an ex a tennis expert on commentary and someone who actually they did commentary on football or cricket or something for years and years and then someone said do you want to have a go at tennis um so that's that's a little bit disappointing and i think that's partly the reason why um that there is that you know that disbalance with with commentary i mean for an example um in the, the tournament in Abu Dhabi last week, only three of the 11 commentators were female for a WTA event. And that ratio has been lower than, you know, three out of 11 in the past. One of the other things is um, the WTA commentary is now done from Leeds and it used to be done from Southwest London. So if you think about Leeds, it's not exactly the hotspot for tennis in the UK. So perhaps it's they're struggling to attract people who have that knowledge to go to um, to Leeds to, to work on that commentary, whereas it pro probably would be easier for them to do that in southwest London. So do you think, think it's to do? So you think it's it might be to do with sort of you know availability of you know talent in a specific area, given you know the sort of restrictions that are in sort of place at the moment. Yeah, I mean, like I say, there are solutions for for doing commentary from home as well, um, but I think sort of. Up until then, you by moving the commentary base to Leeds, you're probably attracting um, commentators or you're probably attracting talent who have a broader um, sort of knowledge of various different sports, especially when, you know, especially other sports that take place up and more up and down the country and are more spread out around the country. Um, and that's why you end up with football commentators um working on tennis if, if that makes sense yeah. i mean like i say like i say it's not all it's not all bad i'm not criticizing every single tennis commentator that works in football but you like i say you do notice a difference in the quality um between what i would call an expert tennis commentator and perhaps the this term might be a bit cruel but a say what you see commentator if that makes sense yeah, it's a bit like Mark Petchy suddenly popping up on Match of the Day and yeah. having his two pence worth. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't doubt that I'd Mark Petchy. I'd love to see that. <laughs> Perhaps we can suggest it to him. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, exactly, you, you've, you've got it spot on there. And, and there are some really good female voices in tennis. They're just not working in the right places. So you've got you have got female tennis voices working on ATP events. Um, we've got new voices in uh, as you know new female voices in commentary, commentary like um, Amory Batson and, and Yaz Clark, who's Jay Clark's brother, uh, Jay Clark's sister, um, who worked on commentary of the LTA events towards the end of last year. Um, so, you know, we, there is that talent there. It's just not getting to the right places where it needs to be, if that makes sense. Um, the other thing that I want, would add on to that is because the ATP and the WTA World Feed commentary is done from the uk the commentary is very much from an english perspective um so if you think about you know tennis is a worldwide event and you have tournaments in north america you have tournaments in asia you have the tournament you have tournaments all around the world but the commentary is all done from a very much english and european perspective so you very rarely hear voices from other parts of the world from you know on what is a global sport so it makes me wonder what we're missing out on if we had some of those voices now there obviously there are tennis commentators in those other parts of the world that work for other broadcasters you know tennis channel and espn and the australian broadcasters will have their commentators that work on the australian events but you know we're not going to hear them because they're working for those 
networks and it feels like actually if we had different people from different parts of the world and different backgrounds commentating on services that are based in other countries what would you know how rich would the commentary be and how much more enjoyable perhaps would it be than some of than someone in a, in a basement in Leeds you know talking about what they what we can all see yeah, no, that's a, a very excellent point. <laughs> I think we need more diversity and, and choice as well. Like we could choose to listen to, I don't know, commentators based out in Australia or Japan or something, give, get their side of events. And no, that's absolutely um, an excellent yeah, point. And at the Grand Slams, you do sometimes have that choice. I know that the in the US Open, um, Amazon will sometimes give you the choice between their own commentators and the commentators that are in the US on the court, on the world feed, but that, you know, there'll be American commentators and it's happened with the Australian Open in the past where they'll give you the, the option to choose the, the world feed commentary instead of Eurosports commentary. I don't think that happened. I don't think that happened last year, but there'll be a choice of different voices, if that makes sense. They're doing that again this year. Um, so there will be some, there is some choice. And obviously with the French Open, you get the choice between Eurosport and ITV. Um, so there is some, but it's very limited in terms of what the broadcasters give us in terms of choice. They need you on, on the boards as a you know, consultant, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, anyway, that's been, that's been fantastic and hopefully extremely informative for our listeners. Um, we're going to take a quick ad break now, but do join us in the second half of today's show. We're going to be chatting about all the latest Australian Open developments, uh, including quarantine and the uh, controversy surrounding that. And also Andy Murray testing positive for coronavirus. So join us in just a moment. This is The Passing Shot. You're joined by Joel and Kim and our special guest, Lee, from Tennis on Telly. Um, we're going to move on now to talk about all the Australian Open news that has arisen over the last weekend or so. Um, most notably, I suppose, is the fact that, well, 72 players um, have been told that they have to quarantine in their hotel room for 14 days uh, without leaving um, the hotel for practice. Um, and that's because there were five coronavirus cases, uh, positive coronavirus tests found um, across three flights arriving into Melbourne from LA, Abu Dhabi and Doha. Um, three people have tested positive on the flight from LA. We had a play, um, a passenger on the Doha flight testing positive and also Bianca Andreescu's coach tested positive on the flight from Abu Dhabi, um, meaning that these players are now in, in severe um, quarantine and they're not very happy about it, are they? Um, I think a, a big issue is that a lot of players feel that the rules were not transparent. They weren't um, aware that if this were to happen, that they would have to stay in complete isolation. Um if there were tests, you know, tests on on the planes, the blame game now begins. I feel because you know the players, it the, you know the players are pointing the finger at the, you know the the Australian Open tournament organisers, and you feel like the tournament organisers are going to be like, you know, look, you kind of, uh, you know, you know, you signed up for this. This is what you kind of, uh, you know, should have expected. And um, you know, all while this is going on, in the context of kind of the the grand scheme of things, you know, we've got. Also, this other narrative around the fact that, you know, there are Australian nationals 
um, you know, stranded all around the world, not able to kind of come back into their country, seeing all these tennis players um, being flown in um, from you know various locations, and obviously being very kind of frustrated about that being, you know, you know almost kind of in their eyes seeing tennis in this sort of privileged position um, that is being kind of prioritized above all, in- including the pandemic. So there's been lots of narratives kind of, uh, you know, breaking out over this, um, you know, most players are now, you know, I imagine in quarantine and effectively we've got kind of two quarantines now, as you said, Kim, we've got that hard quarantine where, you know, these players who are on these flights are, going to have to be in their rooms for 14 days um you know doing absolutely nothing <laughs> and we've already seen some players um you know on their sort of social media channels hitting a hitting a ball against the wall hitting a ball against the window um so you know there that that's kind of happening but then you've also got the players who you know arguably are now in the best position possible um who have the sort of privileged um they're able to actually go out uh, for five hours a day and do their practice, uh, whether that's on the court or, or in the gym. Um, and it's going it, to, I think ultimately for me, and I don't know, Lee, where you kind of stand on this, it feels like, you know, this situation that's uh, arising, it, it, it doesn't feel like it's going to be a fair competition come day one of the, the Australian Open. Yeah, um I think Tennis Australia have probably done the best job that they can. Um, it's obviously been a logistical nightmare for them in terms of getting everyone to the tournament um, as safely as they can. Um, inevitably, you cannot account for everything, every possibility. Um, you cannot be 100% you know, safe in, in terms of people passing um, the getting negative coronavirus tests, it, there's always going to be someone somewhere. Um, it, it's, I think it's difficult to sort of put blame on any one or any organisation in particular because in this pandemic everyone has a, a personal responsibility for their own welfare and the welfare of the people that are around them and they're interacting with it every day. We do that, you know, day in, day out in our in our normal lives. Some people do that better than others. Um but at the end of the day, the, the, the tournament organisers have got to look after the citizens of Melbourne, first and foremost. The, you, you put it in perspective, um, other tournaments have happened in places where COVID was circulating in the community. So while Roland Garros happened, there was COVID in Paris. And while the US Open happened, there was COVID in, in, in New York. And, you know, it's happened in Delray Beach. We've had players test positive in various places because there's been COVID in the community. And... The rules, you know, if you look at what happened with Sam Querrey escaping St. Petersburg and flying to London, you know, there are tennis players there that haven't necessarily followed what the rules have been for, you know, whatever reasons they want. But in Melbourne, you haven't got COVID circulating in the community at the moment. They haven't had anyone in the community test positive for 11 days. And they're going to do everything that they can to keep it that way. Um I think players need to realise that Melbourne is not the same as everywhere that they've played elsewhere in the last year. Yeah, it's it's and you know most players are coming in from countries where there are high rates and you know I think I think um, I heard on the radio that you know in Victoria there's been a total of like 800 deaths. Um, from COVID like last year and obviously at the moment in London in the UK we're getting you know more than that per day so it's completely different um 
maybe sensitivity or we've become so normalized um to it i guess in places where the rates are really you know virulent um and i guess a lot of players maybe aren't thinking about yeah the local perspective and i mean i think there's something like i do i do totally understand where they're coming from with regards to the the australian nationals who are stranded abroad and and not able to get back to australia because each state has a certain number of people they can allow into the country per week i think there's about 37,000 australians waiting to return so <laughs> understandably i think there might be quite a bit of hostility to this tournament even going ahead what with that you know situation going on and those people have got a quarantine as well when they return mm. and and it's it's the it's what you've called a, a hard quarantine or a tough quarantine for for that's the norm for people who are flying into Australia that aren't playing in the in the Australian Open. So um, I'm not really sure that's the right wording to use because it's a normal quarantine. Essentially, those players that have arrived and aren't having to do that are having quite a privileged quarantine in that they're being let out for five hours a day, um, five hours a day to practice and 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 use the gym and use the food court. So it's not like the the what we're calling a hard quarantine is actually harder than anything that anyone else has to go through. And obviously we've got um, the six players in Adelaide as well, uh, you know, playing the exhibition, who I think they've got the most lenient quarantine of all, um, according to, I think, the situation. Like they've got a gym in the hotel that they can use. I think I think they're going to, you know, have the most freedom out of anyone, which of course has again raised some issues with the players and, you know, uh, the fact that there's not, you know, fair treatment across the board. But I think, you know, players yes maybe they feel that the organizers haven't been completely honest with them but at the same time you know they they're being allowed to play the sport that they love and that I think you know the fact that they've you know still able to go out there and prepare for this tournament okay the preparation is far from ideal but the fact that it's going ahead like I think they do need to kind of appreciate what's been done you know to allow it to take place um you know a bit bit more than perhaps some of them are I think there are it does stink a bit of, you know, um, we've had a few players moaning about like the food um, in the hotel and okay, the the pictures don't look particularly appetizing, but when there's people, you know, starving in other parts of the world and, and, uh, you know, I'm with, I'm with uh, Benoit Pair on that one. I'd I'd be sending out for McDonald's. (laughs) McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) Just, um, you know, on on a more kind of serious, just kind of looking at it from the, 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 the player this the player perspective kim kind of alluded to some of the kind of grumblings of of some of the players i mean yulia uh, putintseva uh, of kazakhstan kind of wrote on twitter you know what i don't understand is that why no one ever told us if one person on board is positive the whole plane needed to need to be isolated i would think twice before coming here and belinda bencic from switzerland sort of had similar sort of um grumblings as well i mean just looking at these sorts of kind of tension you know we you know one of the things last year was kind of the talk around sort of the the ptpa and having a sort of player council now just kind of seeing these sorts of of tensions kind of play out do you think that kind of uh, you know brings that sort of um that sort of group or the need for a sort of ptpa like establishment whether that involves novak Djokovic or not do you feel like there needs to be a stronger sort of group there that represents the players to make sure that they all know what they're kind of getting themselves into because at the moment it feels like some of these players you know they uh, you know they kind of signed up for one thing and they've got something completely different and 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 maybe something like a ptpa if that existed would make sure 
that that would have been more sort of even than it is at the moment? Um, I mean, I think I think a player association in theory is a good idea. I'm not sure the PTPA is the right one, that it has the right people on it to represent all the players. I mean, um, Djokovic has certainly made some dubious decisions during the pandemic and let's I'd say let's say some interesting views on various health issues. Let's let's not go there and put that aside. But he made some suggestions to Tennis Australia um, today or yesterday. Um, some of those, I think, frankly ridiculous. Especially when he's four, he's one of those privileged people that's four hundred miles away in Adelaide, where the rules are different. Um, you know, the, the players have been invited there to compete in an exhibition. Um, on the merit of their own performance. So, um, you know, you could argue, well, if you're a better player, you'd be in Adelaide to those players that are in, you know, in Melbourne. But it's, I think, you know, you have to ask, how does Novak Djokovic expect Tennis Australia to find private houses with tennis courts for all of the players with literally no notice and the health authorities to agree on that? There's, you know, there's players are in quarantine right now and they're not going to go anywhere. Um, I think when we going back to sort of the, the players and the conditions that they're in um, in Melbourne, especially the ones that have ha- that are going through this quarantine. I mean, all of the players are probably going to be worried about the lack of practice time already, whether they're in that harder quarantine or, or, or not. Um, it goes back to looking at that situation of looking at how bad COVID is outside of Australia, um, where. Most people have been flying from city to city without having to quarantine on arrival, and especially for pro athletes who've got exemptions. Um, has this been a bit of a wake-up call to some players of what COVID actually is and what it involves? Um, I spoke to Mark Petchy, um the other day who's gone out there to do commentary. Um, he's got no complaints about quarantining. He's quite happy to sit in his hotel room with Wi-Fi, with food brought to him. You know, it's... They're, they're, they're in, although it's it's difficult, they're in a luxury compared to some people. Um, when you think about how COVID has affected people around the world, he's just come back from he's he's gone there from two weeks in Botswana, where people are really struggling without without having COVID added on top already. So you know, it's it's putting things into a, a worldwide perspective. Um, so I do have some sympathy to a degree with the players because it's not what they're used to, but. When you look at the whole perspective, um, you know it's it's very different. I'm sure that I'm sure the players have been told the rules in terms of what they can do and what they can't. So when you look at players who are saying, "Oh, I didn't know that we'd have to all isolate from the plane," well, we've seen the pictures of players mixing on on the planes, haven't we? We've seen them. Um, it's so we've seen them on posting on social media them mixing on the planes with each other so it's very difficult i think for the health authorities in australia to sort of determine who counts as a close contact on the same plane and split the plane into sections they've obviously made that determination that everyone who was on the same flight was a close contact because if you think about it you've got you've probably got um the airline staff going between different passengers on the same plane at different times. So, you know, if it was me, I wouldn't, without actually being on the plane itself, I couldn't make a determination of of who is a close contact with who else on the same plane. They all are. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And you can't take any risks, can you? I mean, if they allowed, you know, someone from that plane to, to go out and then they ended up infecting the whole site. I mean, you just... 
uh, you know, it's their backs will be on the, their, on the line. You know, it's, it's just, you can't risk it. So mm. um, you, they've got to be, they've got to be careful. And if that means players complaining about, you know, food or I think, I think Putinsva had a mouse in her room. Um, at least she's got one <laughs> company, not on her own. She's got a pet mouse. There you go. I, I that she should, she should sign the map. I, I said she should uh, sign the mouse up as a coach on yeah. her coaching staff. <laughs> I'm sure that it's made her, you know, do a bit of running around in the room <laughs> trying to catch it. Well, exactly. That, that's what the gym equipment they're delivering is it's a mouse that they can run away from. Yeah. I do think it's interesting. Uh, you know, you talk about, I think, you know, some of the players who I think have had. I feel like some of the players who've had longer careers and therefore have had lots of kind of different experiences a lot more than maybe arguably some of the, you know, the players who are kind of newer to the tour, you know, players like Angelique Kerber and I think Victoria Azarenka as well. Um, I, you know, Kerber's kind of posted the fact that, you know, she's, she's in that sort of Mark Petchy camp, I think of, look, we're in a sort of privileged position here. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow and kind of see what happens. And, uh, you know, I think for me, that is the sort of, that is the sort of perspective perspective and mindset that I would kind of take to you know this situation as a player I know it's not easy I know it's probably quite difficult but you know at at the end of the day you know these these players are sort of being able to sort of still kind of travel around the world when you know there are kind of restrictions in place on kind of the majority of in majority of the population particularly you know uh, you know obviously we're you know we're going through it in the UK but that's you know the same in, in lots of other countries um just kind of talking about some of the other things that have kind of happened over the last week. Um, we'll get on to kind of your Strempska uh, in a second, but let's talk about Andy Murray because Andy Murray uh, had a positive uh, test. I think he's still sort of quarantining in, at his home uh, in London, um, hoping to still be able to play uh, the Australian Open. I, I imagine he's having his team anyway are having conversations with Craig Tilly and the, the organizers to see if that is possible. Um, this caught me off guard because, you know, he, he was, he was meant to play in Delray beach. He decided against it because, you know, he didn't want to take that. Uh, you know, he felt it probably was like an unnecessary risk. And then lo and behold, he tests positive for Corona an absolutely, you know, nightmare situation for, you know, for British fans. I mean, Carl Edmund's not going to be there. Um, you know, we're all kind of interested to see, you know, how Andy Murray was going to do. He had he showed good form at the, the mini Battle of the Brits event in, in December. I mean, what do you what, what do you guys think? Do you think are we gonna see are we gonna be able to see him at the Australian Open? Because, you know, my gut is telling me, you know, it's that sort of heart situation says I really hope so, but you know, given all of this, you know, things that are going on, it it, it it doesn't feel right if it happens. Yeah, I think it's cutting it a bit fine. When I first heard, you know, that he tested positive, I was like, oh, that's that's it then. That's, you know, that's a right shame and really bad luck and obviously very ironic considering he didn't go to Delray Beach uh, to be on the safe side. Um but there is still a possibility. Um, he just wouldn't be able to play any of the warm-up events, you know, the week before. So it's not in the realms of impossibility, but I think it's going some and he might decide that it's just a bit too much. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, if, if everyone else doesn't have the best preparation, is it going to make too much of a difference? I just feel like you've got to turn up and get on that court and see what happens. I mean, it's it's a grand slam. At the, at the best of times, it's very unpredictable, isn't it, a lot of the time? So I think it all depends. I think, um, yeah, I think we'll have to see how it goes over the next couple of days, I suppose. And I guess he's got about a, a week um, to kind of test negative and get on a plane. 
Yeah, he's kind of he's kind of in the same situation or a similar situation to those who are having to quarantine in Melbourne for me. Um, I'd like to think that if he if he's got any hope of going to Australia and competing in the Australian Open, that he's already got his watch set to Melbourne time and he's already getting up at, you know, going to bed at four o'clock in the afternoon and getting up at midnight like we do as fans. So um you know, to get acclimatised to the time zone. I get that he's still going to then fly there, but I think if he can do that, and I think he's probably able at least to, I'm hoping he's got a nice big garden that he can practice in as well and get some exercise in. So um, he's probably actually in a slightly better position there. Um, It's just the flight, isn't it? The getting out there that he's going to put him, you know, not competing. But then you do have players that arrive at tournaments last minute anyway, don't you? So... It's um, a difficult one. I, I think it rules him out of the, the tournaments in the week before the Australian Open. He's not, as far as I'm aware, he's not officially withdrawn from those yet. But I think um, he was on. He was an alternate anyway, so he hadn't got into the main draw. I think there will be other withdrawals from those tournaments um, because some people will prefer to get practicing where they can. And then for other players, those matches will help with that practice. Um you know, to play competitive matches as a warm-up as opposed to playing it competitively for for the, the, the tournament itself. So um, I think, you know, he's in a similar situation there. But I, I don't know, my heart really wants him to be there. Um, I, think, I, think, I think most British fans probably don't have high expectations for him to get really deep into the tournament. I think, you know, we'd be, we'd be, you know, we'd be happy if he got into the second week. I think that would be a good achievement because we know that to play best of five is quite, you know, an undertaking for him um, based on, you know, he's not been playing that many best of five matches. To do that with very little practice is going to be difficult for any player. Um, I think for someone at Andy who's probably still in recovery, um from the issues that he's had previously, it's going to be a, a, a tough ask for him to get into the second week of the Australian Open. So I think those things will be working around inside his mind as to whether he thinks that's worth it or not. And and just a quick word on Diana Yastremska, because we spoke about her on our last catch-up because she tested positive uh for um a banned substance um so it was it was all of our to surprise really that she uh you know despite this despite this sort of news story breaking out uh she posted a photo of her on a plane to australia um still not really sure how she's wearing a face mask but putting that aside um it was sort of surprising to see that she's she fully expects i mean i I, she was not gonna she's not gonna fly to melbourne unless she fully expects to be playing there which which um which sort of surprises me because um you know if she was on one of those chartered flights i mean if it doesn't feel like she should be able to to do that unless she's kind of proven proven negative so i mean just a very kind of quick thought be kind of before we kind of wrap up i mean wh- wh- where do you stand do you think uh, do you think that's right or do you think you know she should be staying put really until um you know uh, uh, until proven otherwise i think according to the the wada rules anyway which is the world anti-doping um agency um the flight out there which was funded by tennis australia and you know these are the chartered flights um she should never have been allowed to even get on on the plane like she she's not able to enter melbourne park to train um 
you know, the anti-doping rules say that if, if you're suspended, you know, whether that's provisional or, you know, before your hearing or otherwise, you can't gain access to an event. So I, I just think it's kind of baffling that um, that she was actually allowed to to get on the plane in, in the first place. I think that they'll be looking at Tennis Australia and, and seeing, you know, why they why they allowed that to happen. I think from my point of view, that there's two possible scenarios here. One is she's got or she's building a really good defence for it and therefore expects to be exonerated of, of the, um, the, the accusation of doping, um, in which case she can, provi- she can apply. She's still got a chance to apply for that provisional suspension to be lifted, which if she's successful in that, she would be able to... T- take part in the Australian Open, that's within the rules, um, or she's treating it as a free holiday. What, in quarantine? <laughs> if the rules allow. I mean, you know, some people, if the rules allow, they would, wouldn't they? So that, those are my two sort of opinions that it could be one of those things. But I do think it's a bit strange that she hasn't appealed it and, until now. I think, you know, this originally came out and I think she was notified in December and she's chosen not to appeal it so it's maybe as you said she's building up a big evidence case but yeah she still has she, she she's still got the opportunity to do that she doesn't have to do that straight away and I think if if personally if I was in that situation and knew that that was an option I'd probably want to be you know crossing the t's and dotting the i's on it to yeah. make sure that my case was robust um, Get a good lawyer in. Before, before I before talking to anyone do you know what I mean about whether I was going to even do that or not but so the, the fact that she's got on the plane and gone out there, that indicates to me that she's probably doing that. Uh, that would be the sensible explanation for it. But obviously, who knows in the world of tennis? Because <laughs> any as, we, as we've seen, anything can happen. There was um, uh, a tweet, actually, that was by Tennis Sangren this week that even, I mean, I had to agree with, with part of what he was saying, um, which is a first, I think, for me in a Tennis Sangren tweet. Um, he was saying there was a lot of couch virologists out there because mm-hmm. he yeah. was allowed to fly into Melbourne despite testing positive for COVID. Um, you know, before he got on the plane, they knew that he had a, po- a positive test, which um, raised quite a few eyebrows. But um, it was discovered that he had actually had COVID back in November. He's actually now fully recovered and the test that emerged was because of the viral particles that you can still shed uh, several months after, you know, your your original positive test. So I had to, you know, he was talking about having a bit of a go at couch virologists out there. And I think during this whole pandemic, we've seen an awful lot of that flying around on Twitter where everyone thinks they're suddenly epidemiologists and immunologists and uh i thought that was quite um an interesting an interesting uh, development as well from from this week um i think though before we finish for today we've got a couple of listener questions lee that we'd like to put to you if that's okay so um let's kind of get away from i guess scandal and drama um (laughs) (laughs) we had peter on twitter um at tyguy84 asking what are your thoughts on fran jones and uh how well like you know she's gonna do um having qualified for the australian open and also your expectations for the rest of the brits um in this tournament um, I know you talked about Fran Jones um, on last week's pod, so I'll keep it quite quick um, on Fran herself. I think it's always exciting to have a, a British player qualify for a, a slam that's not Wimbledon for the first time. I think that, you know, that's great to see. Um, 
Fran has an extraordinary story um, in terms of her genetic disorder, which means she has a finger missing on each hand and she only has seven toes, um, you know, which affects her balance and her coordination. Um, so to get to where she has done is really, really extraordinary. Um, I hope she gets a good draw. That said, she didn't have the best of draws for qualifying and she managed to qualify. I mean, you look at who she beat and, and those are some, you know, well-known names in that qualifying draw that she beat. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, a good, a, a decent draw for her and, you know, perhaps a, a nice, easy first round. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think for her, going to the Australian Open and, and playing in a big tournament like, and like that has probably been a dream for her, of hers for a long time. So to actually get there, I'm really so happy for her. Um, you can you could tell when they... Um, I don't know if you watched the match or if you saw the clips on on uh, on the, the news reports afterwards, but you could tell the what it meant to her when she won that match and knew that she got through to the main draw of a Grand Slam, and you know, absolutely amazing um, for Fran. Um, in terms of the other British players. Um, I think Dan Evans has probably got the biggest weight on his shoulders going into Melbourne in terms of how far we expect players to go into the draw. Um, you know, he's, I think, 30, 30th or 31st seed, something like that. Um, so um, he's probably, you know, give him a good draw and who knows where he can go. We've seen Kyle Edmund do it in the past. We've seen Johanna Conta do it in the past. Um, you know, we, set, we tend to have players that do really well in Australia um, every year. There's at least one that does, does quite deep in the in the draw. So I'd like to think that that, that continues. Um, Cam Norrie's been playing really well. He reached the semis in, in Delray Beach. So I'd like to see Cam get some wins in Australia too. I think he's you know more than capable of doing that. Um, in terms of the women, go on. Sorry, you were going to ask me a question, Joel. Yeah, Kim. Uh, sorry, Kim. Kim Lee. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Lee, I was just going to say, I was going to say, last Brit standing, give give me a name. Dan Evans. Oh, okay. I love that. It, I think it's really difficult in terms of the, in terms of the women um, because, you know, Joe hasn't played a competitive match since Roland Garros. Um, Katie's only, Katie Bolt has only played some IT, ITS and she's playing our protected ranking. So we don't really know where her level is at that, you know, at that at that. Grand Slam level, um, and Heather Watson's made made the second round in Abu Dhabi. But I think with the gaps between tournaments, because there are fewer tournaments that the WTA players have played and had the opportunity, um, I think it's harder to make any predictions based on their form than it is with the men. Um, but yeah, so but that, for last bit standing, I would, I'm, I'm going to say Dan Evans. I'd like to say quarter final. Oh, okay. Well, I'll I'll hold you to that, and then I'll, I'll let you know on Twitter. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know on uh, Twitter. Um, uh, you know when when the Australian Open happens. Um, moving on, we've got a, another another listener question from Alexandra McClelland. Uh, her question is: What are the pros and cons of using Twitter as your primary method of communication to tennis fans and the tennis community? Um. Okay. So. Twitter is the is the primary um, way that I communicate with tennis fans to get the information out there. Um, I also obviously have the website. There is a Facebook page as well. The website is very much sort of for um, long-term information. The front page has what's happening this week, and then there are pages behind that which sort of have the calendar and have sort of more detailed information about broadcasters, commentators, etc. 
Um, the, web, the, the Facebook page I tend to post once a week to say what tournaments are happening this week and where you can watch it and kind of leave it at that. But with, with Twitter, it's very much about who's playing where, the schedules, how to watch, and the results more in real time. So I will, I, I will generally update Twitter on a daily basis and as British players play because of the emphasis is very, very much on British players. Um, I keep Twitter, the Tennis on Telly Twitter, factual. I don't offer opinions on there. I'm quite happy to answer people's questions, um, even if it means, you know, answering something that I've already posted. I quite happily answer those again and point people to, to the information. Um, but there's a little bit, you, you get more response from Twitter. Uh, you know, Facebook, I don't generally tend to get comments on the posts. Um, they get shared into other Facebook pages and groups, which is great, um, but don't tend to generate much sort of dialogue whereas twitter you do get that kind of feedback you get uh, quite often if a british player wins you'll get responses or you get people quote the result with you know great match and stuff like that so um i think twitter is very much where it is and where people want that information find that information in real time um it's very much a here and now so that's why that's probably my preferred method of, of using twitter but like i say we tend to keep it rather factual on the tennis on telly account opinion i'll keep to my own account if that makes sense <laughs> so this is quite a rare insight for me a rare thing for me to speak as tennis on telly but offering opinion on things if that makes sense you're living a double life aren't you lee yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's a superman clark kent scenario <laughs> I do find that Twitter can be a bit of a war zone sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, but in terms of, you know, purely facts and information, your, your tennis on telly Twitter page is, um, a very useful source. So if anyone isn't already following it, definitely give, um, tennis on telly a follow. And also your personal account is very, um, insightful as well. Um, now, Lee, just to finish off today, um, I'm going to ask you one final question, which we ask all our guests on the show. Um, I'm going on a very British assumption that as you are a fellow <laughs> Brit, that you drink tea. Um, so here goes. What is your favourite tea? D- do you have one or are you sort of actually more of a coffee drinker, perhaps, or you don't like hot drinks at all? So I'm not a huge tea drinker. <gasps> um so, um, you know, when I do have tea, it does tend to be a normal sort of bog standard builder's tea uh-huh. um, with milk in and, and, and sugar. Um, or sometimes I'll have honey and tea rather okay. than sugar. Um, or sometimes I'll have peppermint tea, but um, I'm, more often than not, I'll drink coffee or iced coffee um, from a can usually um, rather than um rather than tea and I've got plenty of iced coffee ready for the Australian Open for our um random you know sleep patterns that are gonna yeah. um emerge. Exactly. in fact I think I need to start changing my schedule now um <laughs> to get myself uh, up earlier in the morning so I it think is, it is difficult I, I find you know changing the sleep pattern for the Australian Open it's difficult the first couple of days but once you once you've done it for the like sort of first day I mean especially if you're working as well at the same time if you can try and what I tend to do is I will um, usually finish work at four go to bed wake up around midnight bearing in mind I've probably done all the tennis on telly stuff in advance ready for the start of play um, ready and scheduled to tweet and all that kind of stuff 
already. So I'll get up at midnight. I'll start watching. Um, luckily, Domino's Pizza is open until five o'clock in Birmingham. So <laughs> that's, that, that, that is, that is quite crucial. Handy. Absolutely um, crucial. <laughs> that's quite handy sometimes. So um, you know, and then I'll watch through until the morning, and then work it's not once you've done that i think for sort of two or three days you've got into that routine um but it is it's probably worth sort of you know a couple of days before or in the week before the australian open and obviously if you know in normal times you'd be doing this weeks beforehand to to watch the tournaments that are coming up before um it, it is easy, actually easier having those tournaments in the weeks before because you can be more se- – I think you'll probably find you're more selective about what you watch during a tour tournament than you are a Grand Slam. I don't know if that's the same with you as, as me, but like with a Grand Slam, I try and watch as much as I can, whereas, a, you know, a WTR and ATP, I might watch um, a couple of first or second round matches and, and, and then make sure that I, you know, depending on who's playing, I might watch more, but um, – you know, I'm more selective about which matches I watch. So I think having those tournaments in the build-up to the Australian Open makes it easier to make that transition into going to bed early and getting up early. I'm already looking forward to it. You brought a smile to my face. <laughs> I always feel like with the Australian Open, I love waking up in the morning and going on to the Australian Open app and seeing all the results that have happened overnight. It's like it's like Christmas. It feels like Chris waking up on Christmas Day. But um, Lee, honestly, it's been so great to have you on the podcast again. Some really uh, valuable information um, from yourself and on uh, tennis on telly as well. Um, for all of our listeners who uh, want to find out more about tennis on telly, where can they find you on on social media in the digital space? How can they um, how can they keep up to date? So the web- website is simple it's tennis on telly or one word tennis on telly.uk um on twitter the twitter handle is at tennis on telly and on facebook it's facebook.com slash tennis on telly so it's the same handle across all three thank you and we will make sure to put those links in our description for this episode as well um i hope you've enjoyed our first passing shot meets episode of the series um if you have enjoyed uh your coverage of from the passing shot um and you listen to us on apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and of course if you want to stay up to date on all of the goings on at the australian open and all the events leading up to it make sure to hit that subscribe button to us on your podcasting platform of choice whether that's apple Podcasts, spotify overcast castbox stitcher wherever you listen to us make sure you hit that subscribe button and you can follow us on social media too on twitter instagram and facebook at passing shot pod and if you'd like to get in touch with the show um you can do so on social media but also email us passing shot pod at gmail.com do let us know your thoughts if you've got any questions for our mailbag uh we're more than happy to hear from anyone and um let us know all your thoughts over the coming weeks as we go down under and follow the tennis and we will be back next week with uh, a second guest on our Passing Shot Meet series. We've got author Stephen Blush joining the show. He's going to be talking about his new book, Bustin' Balls, World Team Tennis, 1974 to 1978, Pro Sports, Pop Culture and Progressive Politics. So look out for that one. We're going to be posting it next Sunday. Uh, but in the meantime, as I said, Lee, it's been great having you on the show. Really appreciate, um, really appreciate all your wisdom um, and for you. You taking you taking your time to come on it's been a pleasure and uh, yeah listeners we will see you next time see you again soon
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.